Romans, I don't know how many rounds this is of Romans, but uh, quite a few, I guess, since January. And uh, I don't know how many rounds we've been in Romans 8, but we have at least this week <laughs> and next week, Lord willing. And uh, maybe another week, depends on how far we, we get. But um, we kind of uh, stalled on verse 32, which we could spend a, a month or two on that one verse, I think. Um, but uh, Grant's going to read for us um, 26 for 34, and uh, then Carter's going to start us off with a little summary of um, last week. All there was, um, so much meat in this, in this passage. And so, uh, Grant, how about um, reading this for us if you would? Sure. Starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. <clears throat> and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you once again that we can gather together as your local body and openly worship you with no fear of persecution, Father. And thank you for your word um, that we get to discuss these wonderful truths in Romans and Father, in particular today, I want to pray for the other Sunday school as they are uh, on their second round of dealing with the topic of abortion, Father. I pray that you would give them wisdom and deep clarity as they um, teach your word, teach um, your mind on abortion, Father, on the value of, of human life and the miracle of birth, Father. I pray that they would be clear and that the everyone there would uh, understand and uh, it would be well received father and we also pray for the guys that went to um, the counseling conference father that they would have clear and open minds to learn um, how to tend to souls as you explain in your word and father that they would uh, increase in knowledge and be able to come back and use it and bless the local body um, that you have given them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Last week when we were in verse uh, 32, and let me read it for us one more time. Um, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We spent more time on that first part but didn't get to um, really the second part, which is sort of the, there's a, kind of a promise there. He's given us his own son. And then 
another promise that goes with that. And uh, Carter, could you help us uh, kind of go back and help us there? But then this this argument from from greater to lesser is is amazing. Yes, sir. I mean, um, Paul's logic can seen through the lens of a courtroom setting, and I think it's helpful to think about it in that light. So uh, we started off last time in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? So um, the question to ask about verse 31 that we asked previously was what does these things refer to when Paul asks what shall we say to these things? And what he's directly referring to is the truths highlighted in verses 28 to 30. So, so just quickly, just summarizing that, God, the maker of the universe, in eternity past, he knew you intimately before the foundation of the earth was laid. Your destiny was set. If you belong to Christ, your destiny was set from eternity, how you are to know and to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. And as his plan progressed, the plan which the Father put in put into course from um, eternity past, the plan that the um, that the cosmic sovereign and creator of the universe his call would reach your ears and that ultimately it would reach your heart the spirit would then apply the work accomplished by the son planned by the father so that you could stand before god in the right so that you would have a righteousness that is not your own and that same god who has accomplished all that all that this had to had to happen to take place the God who set that in motion, who began it all, he has the one, He's the one who, the same one who has promised to glorify us, to bring us to that state of perfection in Christ, in the future, and we're assured that it will come as sure as the sun will rise. So, in light of all these things, Paul says, "What is there left to say?" So, all of this is just pertaining to the security of the believer. We have sure and steadfast hope that God is true to His promises. So what is there left to say? So thinking about what, what context would these questions come up in our minds or in our hearts, what would drive these things to come up? So basically, in your life, those circumstances and times when all hell seems to be breaking loose, um, when the world seems to be crumbling beneath you, and your life seems to... Uh, seems to unravel at the seams. And at those particular moments when your faith is as small as you could ever have dreamed it to be and doubt seems almost as sure as you could ever have dreamed it to be and your spirit has ultimately failed within you, this drives up these questions. But what is the response to that? Another question that Paul gives to us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or... Like you mentioned last time, since God is for us, who can prevail against us? Who could really come out on top? Um, so just to note again, the present, this is verse um, 31b is said in the present tense. God's not somehow going to eventually be for us. We don't have to get to a certain point to where we wipe the sweat off of our brow and when we get into heaven, shut the gate behind us and go, Man, now I know for sure that God is for me. God is absolutely for us at the at this moment right now, even when it seems like all the all the powers of hell are assaulting you. God is still for you. If you are in Christ, He is for you right now. So, if God is for you right now, what 
what is the implications of that? Even in your present situation, what, what is the implications of God being for you? Well, is there a higher court of appeals than the heavenly courts? No. Is there a supreme court that anyone could, could appeal to other than God's decision? Absolutely not. God's decision cannot be overthrown, cannot be revoked or anything. Um, no one can go past God's jurisdiction. So, what does this? What does this mean? How does this, like, go back to what we, all we were talking about—the security of the believer? This means that no new dirt can be brought up or excavated against us. No incriminating evidence can be presented against us. God's God's decision cannot be overturned just by someone bringing up, and as we'll see here in a moment, just like bringing up new sins, we're going to sin, it's going to accumulate hourly, daily. Our sins are going to just mount up like a heap. But there is not one sin that can be brought up new before the eyes of God that hasn't already been dealt with by the cross of Christ. He has dealt with it on the cross. So we have security. Our salvation is sure. And that was kind of uh, a summary of what we went over last time and then diving into verse 32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things so we talked a lot about that it wasn't Pilate it wasn't the Jews it wasn't Judas out of greed Octavius Winslow that was who it was who said that it wasn't Judas out of greed Pilate out of fear for fear of the Jews God delivered over his own son out of, um, out of love for his people. This is how much security we have bound up in that God let the full weight of his punishment, the full weight of the knife, pierce through the heart of his own son that we might be brought to faith in Christ, that we would be secure in him. And so if God did not spare his own son, how much more will he not give us the things that we need that he talks about in um, in 32b? So I'm just going to read that one more time. 30, um, 832, the second part of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Now the question is, what does all things refer to? There are a lot of things that a lot of people may um, offer as potential potential things that um, Paul is referring to here. Um, how will he not graciously give us all things? So what does all things refer to? Some would say that material blessings are the all things that are uh, being referred to in verse 32. Material blessings, so... God gave His own Son. Why wouldn't you be healthy? Why wouldn't you be physically able to carry out daily tasks and physical, physical health as, along with relational health? Your family members, your relationship with family members, you're not rejected or denied for the sake of Christ or anything like that. Mental health. You don't have any conscience consuming you over sin. You don't have any sort of internal conflict going on 
So he gives us um, this cool relational mental health. Or maybe God gave his son so that we would be wealthy. We would have material wealth. We would have the things that we need to buy a house, live in a lily white suburb, have a, a beautiful family, have a spouse, have believing children, all these sorts of things. <clears throat> Earthly possessions, freedom from, try, from trying times, trials and tribulations, freedom from uh, threats to our comfort, and um, basically God gave his son so that we would have a happy, healthy, wealthy, and prosperous life. These proponents of the prosperity gospel, they're, they're charlatans, and we know that that cannot be trusted. Um, that is not biblical. There are things that, these things that I've just described, the proponents of the prosperity gospel, they will pass away in eternity. They will not endure to eternity, and we know that from Scripture. So another thing that people might um, say that all things... God will graciously give us all things. That refers to basic creaturely things, creaturely needs, or creaturely resources. So God gave his own son. Surely he would allow me to merely survive. Um, surely God would provide food that I may grow, that I would be sustained, clothing to, keep, to clothe me, to um, hide my nakedness, shelter, safety, freedom from harm or opposition, freedom from enemies. But we know that that's not true either. And how do we know? Because if we go a little bit further, not to jump ahead, but just, just right quick, to verse 35 of chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? So we know that those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who embrace Christ from a changed heart, who truly love Christ, they will suffer all these things, bearing the name. And if we go, if we um, turn over, this may take me a minute to turn over, but if we go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Verse 32, I'm going to be real quick just reading. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He's talking about believers here. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward you have need of endurance so that you have done so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised and he goes on there and if we go to the next chapter 11 verse 32 what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon Barak Samson Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms similar <laughs> language to what we'll get to in uh, the later verses of chapter 8 who conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of hell, escaped the edge of the sword, very similar to what we see in chapter 8, were made, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women who received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So we know that this, that people saying that these things referred to we need we're a healthy life, wealth, possessions, a just a lily white picture of a happy life, or basically creaturely resources is completely refuted by Scripture. Those who love Christ and those who will stand by Him will be persecuted, will be torn limb from limb, and some in some uh, instances will be put through the ringer just for our faith in Christ. You take your stand beside Christ, and all the powers of hell will come for your throat. That's basically what refutes. Um, these propositions to what all things refers to. So what does all things refer to in verse 8 and verse 32 of chapter 8? So obviously I think that the answer to that is in verse 28 of chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... What is God's purpose for every believer, everyone whose hope is found in Christ? For this is the will of God. You'll see in verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The will of God is this, your sanctification, that you become like Christ, that you share in the nature of your Father and of the God of the universe. So all things refers to what we urgently need, not material and physical uh, blessings, but everything mentioned all the way from verse 1 of chapter 8 to verse 30. So these are the things that we most desperately need that we are so richly supplied and they are there permanently. So at the beginning of chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Father has supplied Christ's righteousness to us. We have been emancipated from our previous enslavement to sin. The Spirit has been given to us. Assurance of salvation has been given to us. We are, married, we are made heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, will inherit future glory, and the blessings that have been given to us cannot be revoked or taken away. I think Lawson put it really well when um, he said that if the Father delivered over Christ to the cross, then all the benefits of the cross will be applied to us, never to be revoked. Lawson said, this, this is what would make the cross, I mean, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. What would make the cross, the cross the blunder of the ages would be if the blessings weren't afforded to those for whom Christ died. If those things, those promises which we are promised from verse 1 of chapter 8 all the way through 30, the things that, that Paul has been building up to up till now, if those things are revoked, Christ's sacrifice is null and void. It wouldn't have achieved anything. These are the things that are necessary to preserve us, and that is what Christ promises to do. I will lose none of my own. That's the truth that Christ declared while He was on earth. That's what Paul is reinstating here. Christ, if we are His, He will preserve us. He will give us what we need. Not the things that the world may say we need, but the things that we need to grow more in likeness and holiness. Even, even when all hell may break loose and break us in two, we will truly, he will preserve us and form us more like himself. Mm. Hallelujah. Yeah, I think we maybe just need to pray and go home. <laughs> 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 it's, it's really, 
a, a great summary of, of all that. Wow, Carter, such great news. Caitlin, you had such a huge smile. What and a hallelujah. When you think of all of that, what just brings you such great joy? What stirs you when you hear it? Oh, thanks. Isn't it such better news than if it was the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? And Carter, thank you for kind of reminding us of what that all things is and what it isn't. I just think that's so good. And to be conformed to the image of his son, that is our ultimate goal. That's what God's ultimate goal is in us. And it will be finished. He who began that good work will carry it on to completion. What great joy, especially knowing how, and Carter touched on this, how I, at least in my life I flounder around so much. But God <coughs> uses even those flounderings and, uh, and works them together for good. Grant, I know that's not an easy act to follow. What, <laughs> what do you say? Oh, man, I don't know. I think I need a little bit of a breather just to yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And, uh, That was really good. Um, that will take some digestion. It's like that was really good, Carter. Um, yeah, I, I can't really add to that, but I guess I can go back a little bit and just sort of say what I was thinking about this passage as a whole would be I, I have, as I've been reading through chapter 8, I sort of have had, of course, glorification on the back of my mind and have seen how important it was in these sections. It was, you know, the ground of our hope in the earlier sections. Um, and then Paul brings it up uh, again with uh, the golden chain. And then he brings it up again with being conform- uh, the first one among many brothers right before the golden chain, that that's our final destination. So we have this promise of future glorification, uh, in my opinion, is a, is a huge focus in the latter section of Romans 8. Um, but how sure is that hope? Like how sure is it that we have... Uh, this future glorification coming. And I think this passage, as as Carter already hit on, was um, it's for our assurance. Paul is building this incredibly logical argument of how can the believer be sure? Yeah, we have this future glorification promised, but what about in the interim? What's going to happen now? And And what does Paul say? And so uh, we've seen that he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. The golden chain then is further evidence that all them, all those whom God for love will be glorified. Um, but what about the stuff in between, our own weaknesses, the world's persecution, the accusations of Satan and those who serve him? And so we can see, as Carter, as Carter already said, that this is kind of a courtroom setting. So we have, you know, the hypothetical, what if someone brought it, we have the, um, someone turned against us, who can be against us? Uh, someone bringing a charge, who can bring a charge against God's elect, and then who can condemn. Those are the three things of almost like a courtroom trial. Someone turned against you, a charge laid against you, and the potential of that charge turning into condemnation or judgment for the charge itself. And so what can we say to that? Um, what, is, what does Paul say? And 
Paul answers these questions with saying um, that God is for us. Basically, he's summarizing the golden chain. Then, who, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, if God is on our side, you know, as Carter was saying, he's the highest court in the land. There's no court of appeal to go to beyond God. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no one higher than him. Um, his judgment, his throne room is also universal. There's no other place. It's, it's total, the whole universe is contained in his judgment. So, of course, God is on our side, and we know that because he gave up his only son. How will, we not, how will we not graciously give us all things? And then who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He's um, already let down the gavel. We are declared right uh, in his sight. Who is to condemn? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. And so we see that there's just uh, argument after argument that I'm sure y'all will get into uh, verifying that God is on our side. If we are one of those whom he foreloved, we're in the golden chain, we will be glorified. We have assurance of that um, because God is for us. And so the next part of the argument that we'll get into in future weeks then is, okay, if God is for me and no one can thwart thwart God, what about if someone can separate me from God? That's the logical next step in my mind. So if God is on my side, is there any way that that can be severed? Is there any separation that can take place? And we'll see that there isn't. Um, No one can separate. No thing, no created thing, um, no power of darkness, no principality, no government, uh, no persecution. Our own selves, we can't separate ourselves from the love of Christ. And there's no separating us from the love of God if we are in Christ. And I think that's sort of the overview that Carter really you know, honed in and dived in. I think it was a really good start. The logic is impeccable, isn't it? You know, I think that, that if you have a little bit of a, uh, a bet toward uh, the logical way of thinking, and I think that's what I love. There are a thousand things I love about Romans 8, but the logic here is just from greater to lesser in verse 32 but he continues to close any loophole that there possibly could be a way that God would lose you. It's not going to happen. There's such security in knowing the Lord Jesus that should absolutely, and Carter and Graham both shared that, should absolutely change the way we operate and just in the way we think. Um, Scott? Yeah, just, just to piggyback on that, just again, thinking back to verse 32, let me just read verse 32 again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this, just one commentator just said, nothing could express the love of God for his people more convincingly than the fact that he delivered him up for us all. I just thought that's an incredible statement. I mean, nothing could express the love of God for his people more convincingly than sending his son. So, I mean, we should be utterly convinced of, of, of God's love for us. And this story I've told before probably a couple times, but it's this powerful story and you can miss the, the point of it. So I'll try to make sure I make the point, but Dave Carson, one of his colleagues at seminary, this was years ago, they had fostered tons of kids, and they had a house full of kids at the moment, and they had their own kids, and they had foster kids, and then they got this call, that there were these two twin boys that really needed a home, could they take them? They said, we can't, we got way too many kids. They pushed and pushed and pushed, and they finally said, okay, we'll take them. I think they're maybe seven years old, and they, they get them there, and they're very shy, and they, you know, try to interact with them. They put them to bed, and there was not a sound, like, in the room. They're like, this is very strange. The dad went in the room, and the two boys were quietly weeping uh, on the pillow, like, just quietly weeping. And what they found out was these two boys had been abused in multiple homes, and now they're just, like, they're afraid to make any sound, so they're, they're weeping. So they had them tested, 
and they tested basically like they were they were no way that they're going to be normal. Like that's how bad they tested. And so this family kept them and loved them and, and just showered them with love and eventually adopted them in, into their family. And I think, I don't know, three or four years later, they tested them and they tested normal. It's just like, and Carson was saying, what made the difference? And he was saying, it's, it's this steady, constant love of these two parents made this massive difference. And this is where we, you can miss the, the, the application. The application is, if God has loved us, like, this is human love, can have such a powerful love, uh, influence on two people at human love. What about divine love? Like, if we knew and are convinced that God loves us, we go to the cross, he's, he's given us the greatest proof. How, like you're saying, what security, what hope, what, what joy, what uh, perseverance, what obedience would be produced in us if we're convinced? And if we're doubting it, we say, it's sin to doubt God's love if you're a Christian because he's given us the greatest thing he could have given. He's given us his son. Yeah, so what, what security and, and joy we should I have? do think that's a good point, and, and, and I think we should ask ourselves if we ever are doubting God's love, and maybe it's not something you struggle with, but to say, well, what would God have to do? That's a good question, I think. You know, if giving his own son isn't enough, what would be the next thing that he would have to do? And I don't think there's hardly any, where do you go? I don't think there is anything that, that he could do. This was interesting to me. Um, Boyce was, uh, I thought, fantastic this week in a, in a number of ways. But he gives us four facts about the atonement, that first part of uh, um, verse 32. This is God's action. God's the one who has done it, and um, let me ask you this, and I hadn't really thought about that, but what makes that such good news? We know that that's good news, but what comforts you by the fact that it was God who chose to do this? What, that it's God who does it? What, just draw it, maybe it can be you guys too. Why is that big? Okay, good. Yeah, it wasn't by us or up to us, and it really takes away any of uh, of that. Good. What else? Something else I thought about with the all things, like how wonderful is it that as we're killing sin by God's grace, like he would graciously give us the fruits of the Spirit. You know, yeah. I, I get convicted, like I want to be more loving, I want to be more patient, more self-controlled, and I can be certain that when I ask for those things, God will graciously give them. Yes. He is not stingy, is he, with that? Nope. And certainly what how he produces that may be different in, in, in all of us, but he'll definitely produce it. Yeah. What else is very comforting in the great news about that this is God who decided to do this? When Boyce was talking about it, it hit me, and Carter nailed it, I, I thought so well, is there is no higher... Uh, courtroom you know it, there's no jur- I think he said there's no jurisdiction outside of uh, what God's in control of he's, he's in control of everything and so I think when, when you say okay it's God who decided to do this that helps us convince us of what verse 31's already told us that he's for us that convinces us that uh, no one can successfully be against you that's going to convince us, like we see in a week or two, that nothing can separate you from his love. And you can go on and on and on in that thinking, and it's just all such great news. Um, if, if we uh, will let ourselves go there, the atonement involved God's only son. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29, that John the Baptist says, it is the, he is the Lamb of God. 
the Lord Jesus. God did not spare his son, number three. And number four, God delivered up Jesus um, for us. And so um, this argument from greater to lesser, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts a little bit more of that because you say, okay, that is the greatest thing that he could possibly do is to give us the Lord Jesus. And that's what makes everything else such a great, uh, a, a, uh, a guarantee. Everything's lesser than that. But one thing that I, and I think it was Piper that pointed it out, but another number of guys have too, is to say, but not only that, and this one kind of got me, I'd never thought about it. It's also the least probable thing that he would do. Had I not known the gospel, I would say, well, the one thing God's not going to do is kill his son. Like, he might do all kinds of other things, but he's not going to do that because I know the way I feel about Ben. And so you say, well, wait a second. If that's the least probable thing that he would do, then all things after that are more probable than that. So it's that, again, a similar argument, but a little bit of a different uh, side to it. Any thoughts on, on any of that there? And Sinclair Ferguson just said, since God has given his son for our salvation, we can be sure he will withhold nothing from us that is for our good. What greater persuasion could God give us of his love? No, no other is needed. And that's exactly what you're saying, the logic. Yeah. And so we went in 31. In 31, God's for us. So there uh, he's seen, and this was uh, boys too, seen as our champion. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us also a benefactor. And then... Now we get um, any other things on 32, because we could, we could camp there longer. Carter, anything else coming to mind? 33. 33 is uh, amazing as well. He switches gears just a little. Um, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, Grant's absolutely right. This is a courtroom sort of uh, idea here. It is God who justifies. So who could bring any charge against God's um, elect? It's God who justifies. So he's the judge. Boy said, there's three really troubling things when we think about that. If we just read the first part, is who could bring any charge against God's elect? He said there's three troubling things. I thought it was really good. Let me read them to you. One, he said, our conscience gets us. And we know there's a lot of things, daily, hourly, minutely things that people could bring against me as to why I'm not worthy of this. So our conscience, then Satan, doesn't he? He condemns us. He tries to, right? And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was the theme verse for the whole chapter. And we started in verse one with that. And so Satan... His condemnation could get us. But he said, and I think Boyce might be right here, is God himself is our judge. That can be unsettling. That can be unsettling because we know how thoroughly he knows you. Right? We know that there isn't anything that he doesn't know that you think that you do. And so when you think of this, you would have to say that what is God saying here? That if you have been saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ, you are among those whom God has chosen. 
right? And that's going back to that golden chain. If you are foreknown, you're predestined. If you're predestined, you're called. If you're called, you're justified. If you're justified, you're glorified. And nobody comes in and out of that, that chain there. The exact same number of people that are foreknown end up glorified in heaven. And that's past tense, as good as done. Secondly there, if you were among those whom God has chosen, it is also true that God has justified you of all sin. Carter, I love your point to say our future sin, all of that sin, has, was already paid for at the cross. And so there, there aren't new things that can come up that God has not taken care of already. Any thoughts on, uh, as we think about 33? Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, I think the, these two rhetorical questions, big picture, we want to we walk away from these, one pastor said, with tremendous joy and assurance. And I think that's what one of Paul's aims has got to be. He wants his people to be assured and want to have joy in, in light of these rhetorical questions. But I'm thinking about, like, who, who can condemn us? Well, Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren. I mean, Derek Thomas went on and on about this in his talk about Satan will accuse you over and over and over again. Uh, and R.C. Sproul said, Satan works to bring every conceivable slanderous charge against God's elect. Satan never ceases against the brother. He never stops harassing and getting at our consciences, telling us how wicked we are and that we do not deserve to be in fellowship with Christ. He accuses us in order to take away our assurance and joy and the consolation that is ours in Christ. So I think even just thinking how Satan operates, I mean, think about Peter. Somebody mentioned Peter. Like when Peter denied Christ, I mean, Satan could have tempted him. Like, oh, it's going to be great. Just deny him or whatever. How Satan tempts us, he'll tempt you on the front end. All oh, the sin's going to be great. Go for it. And then when you give into it, then he comes and says, condemn, condemn, condemn. Like he comes to Peter and says, yo, you're condemned. How could you be so wicked? He, he tries to condemn you in, in that moment. So just understanding like how Satan operates. But we need, that's why we need gospel truth. I think Martin Luther just said uh, when Satan would come to him and condemn him, and he, he would say, it's true every word of it. And, and I think John Bunyan says, even more, even more you don't even know about it. It's true, true of me. But then Martin Luther just said, but cry, right across it all. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's where you have this tension. You don't want to lose our sin, like the weight of our sin, but you, the, the Savior. And it reminded me of John Newton, which I mentioned many times before, but Newton, like when he's, his mind is almost gone. Like he has like hardly any memory at all. He was there, like basically on his deathbed, and that young pastor, William Jay, came to see him, wrote down the final words of, of Newton in that little notebook. He closed it up, went back down the streets of London until that night. He opened it back up, and I remember Newton said, uh, my, mind, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. I think those two things, I mean, just think about how often Newton must have thought about the gospel, where his mind is almost gone, and yet he still remembers Christ is a great Savior, where the, these truths are, we just want to have that gospel with Christ magnified so deeply within us. When we face accusations, when Satan comes, no, it's, we upward, look look at Jesus. I mean, he's, uh, one, one other person just said, if charges are brought against us, we need not fear, for the charges are silenced by the upraised, pierced hands of our intercessor. Yeah, yeah. great. I think that's so good because uh, the if like Satan accusing us, that's something that has always baffled me because he appears in Job, he appears in Revelation as the accuser of the brethren in the in the court of God. But this one image that is it's one of my favorite like I guess imagery in the Bible of of uh, sort of what we're talking about. I don't think it's referring to us, but um, it's in Zechariah three with Joshua in the throne room. Um, not not referring, I don't think, to the to the believers today, but just the imagery of it is so striking because Joshua is standing there um, before God, and in my mind, with with Christ there with him as the angel of the Lord, and Satan there on his right hand accusing him to God the Father, and he's got these dirty robes on, 
um, as the high priest, which is interesting. And I think this is what Sproul based his uh, the priest with the dirty dirty robes off of. But um, and Satan accuses uh, Joshua probably rightly because of the sin, the, the dirtiness on his robe. Um, just as we could be accused rightly, we we were sinners and we continue to sin. But the charges um, that could be brought against us, they're not false charges that they they have weight to them but in this scene god rebukes satan the lord rebuke you satan and uh the angel of the lord puts new robes on joshua clean white robes on joshua and it's just this representation to me like this imagery that i associated with with what's happening to us in the throne room of god satan could have been standing there accusing us rightly of all the things that we have done but we have a different righteousness on. It's not on our own merit. God doesn't just say, yeah, but that's okay. Um, he's still just, just and the justifier. So we have this righteousness that came from Christ, and I think that's why he goes straight, straight into it in the verses uh, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. So he goes right into God is the one who justifies, who is to condemn, and then we have the the death, um, resurrection, and ascension of Christ right there. And in all of that, in the justification of us, Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we know that uh, our sins were dealt with, but we have a righteousness imputed to us. We have clean robes. We have Christ's righteousness placed on us so that no charge can ultimately stick. We have been forgiven because Christ paid for those. Those those charges have already been paid for, for in the courtroom of God. So we can be declared innocent. Um, yeah, anyway, that's just what I was thinking. That imagery is, is so powerful of our dirty robes being replaced. Yeah, Caroline and Michael have that ver- book memorized. Anything, Carter, any more on that? I don't think so. That's it. Look at the... Uh, and we'll spend some more time on 34 uh, next week, Lord willing, but... Um, when we think about God pounding the gavel, out, and this was, once again was voice, I just thought it was so good. Our greatest offenses are against God, no matter what we've done against other people. And you remember Psalm 51 where David says, against you and you only have I sinned. He sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and his whole, like a, the whole nation of Israel, really, right? But his, he knew that his offense was primarily against God. That's huge. Our offenses against God, but God is the one that um, is offering this this great news to us. God knows the law perfectly. That was interesting to me. He knows, obviously, what's what's right or wrong in a whole different way than we do. Uh, he knows our sin completely. God has satisfied all possible claims against us. He has done this Himself. Through Jesus Christ. So remember the great exchange. We got all of Christ's righteousness and he took all of our sin. And in justification, those are the two big things. That he took our sin, we got his righteousness, they were imputed to our account, his righteousness was. So his perfect life that he lived is now credited to us. All of our sin, our sin that we've done in the past, today, tomorrow, and all the rest of our life, has been credited to Jesus, if you will, has been uh, into his account, and he died because the wages of sin is death. So the jurisdiction of God's court is universal. 
God's justification of those who he's chosen can never be appealed to a higher court. And that is uh, just the astounding news um, from 30, really 1 to, uh, to 33. A couple more questions uh, to deal with. The, the unanswerable question is what Stott calls them. And they're unanswerable because, um, and I hadn't thought through this either very well, that he gives the question, but then he gives a statement that makes it so that you, you can't answer that question. It's, it becomes a rhetorical question, if you will, because of the statement that he deals with. So his way of reasoning and logic here is uh, so good. Any final thoughts? And just one other thing I would just say in terms of Satan wants to, when he comes to try to condemn us, I think he, he knows he can't snatch us out of God's hand, but he wants to like slow us down, make us doubt our, our mm -hmm. salvation. And uh, J.C. Ross said something like this, but it's a, if, if two people are going to inherit this money, you come and you say, you're going to inherit $5 million, you come to the other guy, you're going to inherit $5 million. Well, immediately it's going to make an impact. But then you go to this other guy and say, wait a minute, we're not sure if you're the one. We're, we're really not certain. Well, then this guy is going to be thinking about that all the time. This guy is going to be living joyfully. This guy is going to be like, I don't know, he's going to be anxious. So we want to be the one, if we're a Christian, we want to be the one who's assured and uh, so not let Satan try to take this away because we're, if we're assured, oh man, heaven is coming? Like what joy, what strength, what hope, uh, yeah, what obedience should be produced? If, if So don't let Satan take that away from us. Yeah. No fear, no anxiety. How is life uh, lived? <coughs> and I think that's the way we ought to, we ought to go about it, Grant. Uh, R.C. said it this way, if, if he loves us in Christ, he loves us forever. There's, mm. there's no change. Yeah. There's nothing that's going to change his mind. Carter? How about it, Scott? Will you close this? Yeah, that's correct. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that you covered this incredible chapter with incredible verses. It's just been so fun to slow down and just chew on some of these verses very slowly and uh, just amazing stuff. Uh, Father, uh, you have given us your son. Uh, as Jerry said, the most improbable thing that you could give us was your son. Uh, I mean, what more should we? What more would you need to do to convince us of your love? So, Father, forgive us when we, we, we as believers, have doubted your love. Uh, help us when we doubt your love. Just to take a trip by faith and meditation to Mount Calvary, because there we'll, we will be reminded of your great love for your people. And Father, in light of these incredible truths, help us to have incredible joy, uh, hope, even today in the service. Help us to sing with joy uh, in light of the gospel, in light of the hope we have. In Christ, I pray you'd use Mark as he teaches and Ian as he leads in singing and uh, help us to be more and more conformed to the image of your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.